Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Friday, January 19th, 2024. On this week's episode, in 2019, her boyfriend's ex-wife went missing. In 2020, her boyfriend was charged with his ex-wife's murder, soon after he committed suicide. Now this woman stands trial for her role in the disappearance of this Connecticut socialite. Plus, a judge pulls the rug out from under Alex Murdoch as the convicted murderer seeks a new trial after allegations of jury tampering. But first, breaking news as Gilgo Beach murder suspect Rex Huerman is charged in a fourth murder. Could this just be the tip of the iceberg for the suspected serial killer? As you can see, I'm flying solo this week. Don't worry, we are not getting rid of our awesome guests. We're just looking to try some new things in the new year, so please let us know what you think. That being said, let's jump right in. First, we go to Long Island, New York, where Rex Huerman, the man suspected of the Gilgo Beach slayings, appeared in court last week, where he pleaded not guilty to charges regarding a fourth victim, Marine Brainerd Barnes. Though law enforcement long suspected the alleged serial killer in Brainerd's death, new DNA testing allegedly links Huerman to a leather belt that was used to restrain the victim. A hair, which was discovered on Brainerd's restraints back in 2010, was unsuitable for testing at the time. However, new technology allegedly allowing analysts to sequence the DNA on the hair, which they claim is a match for Human's estranged wife, Asa Ellerup. Days after Human was arrested and charged in the deaths of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello, Ellerup followed for divorce from Huerman after more than 25 years of marriage. With the charge for Brainerd's death, Huerman now, has now been identified as the killer of all members of the infamous Gilgo Beach Four, who were uncovered nearly 15 years ago. Disturbingly, these four are among 11 total sets of human remains located in the area, and investigators continue to look for potential links between Huerman and additional victims. This case is interesting for a number of reasons, but it, I think it really demonstrates the patience on the part of the investigators in this case as to why they didn't charge this fourth victim at the same time that they made the arrest and charged him in the third case. We know from the affidavit uh, that was attached to the bail motion in this case how thorough the investigation was. We have a link to that um, affidavit and bail motion in the description for everyone if you want to take a look. And it really demonstrates incredible police work. Um, but it also demonstrates their patience because they followed him for some period of time. They were surveilling him. They were watching him. But more importantly, they were gathering more and more information on him because... Many agencies may have, may have felt that they had enough to make an arrest before they did. Um, and you may say, well, why wait? Well, they waited because one, they, they had him under surveillance. So they believed that he wasn't going to commit any other murders under their watch. And two, they wanted to make sure on a case of this magnitude, this seriousness, this much public attention that they were getting everything right. And I appreciate that 
um, patience on the part of law enforcement. But eventually, uh, they they got to a point where they couldn't wait, at least as regards to this fourth victim here that they've just recently charged, knowing that they wanted further DNA testing on that, and then knowing that there is, according to that affidavit, signs that he was ramping up, perhaps, to commit another murder. He had purchased a burner phone, uh, which was something that he always did, they believed, before he committed one of these murders. And they thought, okay, here we go again. And knowing that that may be in the works, they decided not to wait any longer and go ahead and make the arrest. Now, because they had him, what they felt, enough evidence to charge him on three crimes, they also had a little bit of a luxury on waiting on this fourth crime. He's not going anywhere. He, he's still looking at life in prison, even if he's only convicted of these three crimes, even if he's only convicted of one of these murders. So they know that they have him locked down and they had the ability to then take their time to make sure that they did everything they needed to do to charge this fourth victim. That's why they waited. That's why they made the arrest when they did. And that's why we're seeing these charges now. Now, how does this affect the prosecution's case and how does it affect the defense's case? The prosecution's case just gets stronger. Um, it was already strong. Again, refer back to that affidavit if you doubt me on that. They have done a tremendous amount of work of not only tying Hewerman to each of these victims and each of these murders, but also eliminating the possibility that he, one, might be able to present an alibi, or two, that some other suspect may have been involved in all of this. The other thing that happens is by adding more victims, they start to cross-corroborate each other. And what do I mean by that? Is that if you have a case where, let's say, DNA is strongest on victims number one and three, but not very strong on victims two and four. But on victims two and four, perhaps you have better cell phone tracking evidence or you have other some other kind of circumstantial evidence that links him to those crimes and in a way unique to those crimes that may not exist in the other crimes. And so each one of these murders is gonna have its strengths and weaknesses. And as a jury becomes convinced by one count and the second count, that will bleed over. That will cross corroborate the other counts. So now that you have four, it's just going to lead to the natural questions in jurors' minds that anybody would have is, what are the chances? What are the chances that this person um, could be linked to, and we feel beyond a reasonable doubt, one, two, or three different murders and not also be responsible in a fourth case that maybe standing alone uh, may not be as convincing. Now, they will be instructed that that's not the way they should operate. Each one of these counts should be treated independently. And if one count, one charge, one victim is not strong enough, does not reach that burden of beyond a reasonable doubt, they should acquit on that count and that you oftentimes see that in in cases uh, involving multiple different victims. We've seen that recently in the the Masterson case and the Weinstein case, where they were able to convict on some victims, they hung on other victims, and, and even acquitted in some cases on other victims. And so that's the way that it should work. I'm just saying that the way that it does work is that oftentimes these cases start to cross-corroborate each other, and of course the case is going to become stronger with each victim as long as the police do and the DA's office 
does what they're doing in this case, which is be patient and be thorough and make sure that they're not bringing weaker cases in front of them. Which brings us to our last kind of point on this is what do we expect moving forward? As we said, there are other remains out there. There are other uh, bodies that have either been identified, not been identified, but they have not been linked to a killer at this point. I think the police are continuing to investigate those. I would not be surprised, though, if you don't see those charged to Hewerman. They may uh, believe that he's involved. They may show telltale signs that he's involved. But what they don't want to do, and what I hope they don't do for the sake of justice, is not bring in cases that are weak and cannot stand on their own and therefore could have the opposite effect of causing doubt in one case may bleed over and cause doubt in other cases. The other thing we can expect moving forward is a lot of legal wrangling. The defense is still getting caught up on this case. They're now getting even more discovery and evidence regarding this fourth victim. And they're going to want time. And they're going to want to argue about a lot of this stuff. They're going to argue about the constitutionality, pardon me, perhaps, of the seizure of that pizza crust. And you may say, well, it was something he discarded. And I agree with you. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're not going to challenge it and that they're not going to challenge the gathering of evidence. This case, like many that involve DNA, the DNA is going to be a linchpin piece of evidence. And you can bet that the defense is going to attack that in any way that they can. And that will be through the constitutionality of gathering that evidence, the actual recovery and gathering of that evidence, the transportation of that evidence, and the testing of that evidence anywhere that they can find to try to create some doubt death by a thousand cuts when it comes to that dna evidence i see that i i imagine that's what they're going to employ will it be successful time will tell if you ask me to hedge my bets i'd say no i'd say that the investigation is incredibly thorough and if the prosecution is anything like that this case is likely going to lead to a conviction, which um, I hope brings some closure to a lot of people. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move on to Stamford, Connecticut, where a woman seeks to prove her innocence at trial after allegedly conspiring with her boyfriend to kill his ex-wife. Michelle Traconis claims she had no idea her boyfriend, Fotis Dulos, was plotting to kill his former wife, wealthy socialite and mother of five, Jennifer Dulos. Jennifer's disappearance caught the attention of media outlets after the woman disappeared from her upscale Connecticut neighborhood and blood was discovered in her garage along with evidence of a cleanup. Though Jennifer's body has never been found, prosecutors believe that Fotos Dulos murdered Jennifer in her garage before disposing of her body. He was allegedly captured on video with Traconis throwing away garbage bags at multiple locations shortly after Jennifer went missing. Dulos would never face trial for the alleged killing as he took his own life shortly after being charged with Jennifer's murder. 
Draconis is accused of aiding Fotis in the conspiracy, with pol police claiming they found her DNA on items related to the murder recovered from the disposed trash bags. Investigators also discovered what they claim is a, quote, alibi script authored by Traconis and Fotis, which details their activities on an hourly basis the day of the disappearance. Prosecutors claimed that the script was created to lie about their whereabouts and that the couple created it at the behest of Fotis's then-lawyer, who has since been charged with conspiracy to commit murder himself. As difficult as Traconis's legal struggles have been thus far, the trial has had its own difficulties. Just last week, an alternate juror had to be dismissed after they were overheard saying, quote, we love you to a member of the prosecution. This has diminished the jury to six regular jurors and four alternates. All right, a lot to unwind here. But the first thing I'm going to say is that this is not a slam dunk for the prosecution. And you're going to say, wait. Hold on a second. I've heard about DNA. I've heard about video evidence. I know that there's a huge motive in, in, in this case. All of that is true, but all of that really has to go towards the ex-husband and boyfriend of the defendant. This case is an uphill battle for this particular defendant um, for a number of reasons. One, it's a nobody case. We know that in any prosecution, no matter how many defendants you have, no matter the circumstances, a no-body case is always going to be difficult because that's the first piece of evidence that you look towards in a murder case is the body, the autopsy report. How did the murder take place? Was there a struggle? Is there DNA evidence that can re be recovered from the victim? You don't have any of that in this case. And again, it's going to lead to a question in the jurors' minds. Will that question rise to the level of reasonable doubt? I don't know, depending on the evidence in this case, and time will tell. We'll see how these jurors come out on it. But a no-body case always leaves that lingering question of what if? What if this person did just disappear? And I know that they have been uh, labeled as legally dead at this point, and that will be explained to them. And it will be explained to them how, why would a woman... Uh, who's a mother of children, take off for no reason, with no plans and no indication that she had a reason to, when her husband has every reason in the world as far as motive to do something uh, about this horrible divorce that they're going through. Yes, wonderful questions. Still, is there a chance? Is there an outside chance that she could have just taken off? Sure. Is the defense going to argue that? I imagine so. Will that be convincing? Probably not, but it already starts the prosecution out in more of a deficit than they already would be because they don't have that important piece of evidence. The other thing they don't have here is a co-defendant. I don't think I'd be having much of this discussion if we were talking about both Traconis and Dulos on trial together. And now you've got the actual person who you believe committed the murder, the person with the motive to commit the murder, the person with their DNA all over the place who's on trial for murder and you have Traconis on trial as an accomplice in some sort of way. That's a very convincing case, but they don't even have that here. And so I think that again will create some problems and some questions in the jurors' minds as to why are we sitting here with this one person talking about her involvement? Where's the, where's the other person? And whether or not the death of 
Doulos will come out in all of this. I don't know. I don't know if there's been any kind of motions to keep that out. It really depends, I think, on the defense. I imagine that is something they could keep out unless that they feel that somehow it played into their hand, which I don't see that it would to me. Knowing that he killed himself soon after being charged likely shows that he was involved, which therefore probably means that she was involved. But probably the biggest problem with all of this is really their case lies upon the theory of what I'm going to call implied knowledge. And that's the idea of they're going to have to prove to the jury not so much what she knew, because that's nearly impossible sometimes to show what somebody knew, unless you've got an eyewitness who's watching them talk about something or watching them observe something. But it's the idea of what should she have known? And should she have known that it's bizarre and certainly problematic and probably highly suspicious that she's driving around with her boyfriend and disposing of garbage bags at different locations around the city. Yeah, that's suspicious. Could he have had an excuse? I don't know. Could that excuse have been something reasonable enough for her to to believe it? I don't know. If that is true, she's going to have to get on the stand to explain all of that. But my point remains the same that a lot of this case comes down to you jurors should believe she was involved because how could she not have been involved knowing all of this kind of nonsense was taking place around her. The other problem uh, that the, the prosecution has here is that one of probably the most crucial pieces of evidence that they had in this case got tossed out before trial. That's why uh, outlets like Court TV and, and Law and Crime Network and our own podcast, I think, are so important to understanding these cases because so much of a trial is handled before the trial actually begins. Before the first witness is sworn, all of these evidentiary hearings are so important because they create the landscape of the trial that's going to follow. And when you have an instance where the cell phone recovered from the defendant that was used in their investigation to track where he had been, which led to perhaps some of the recovery of those surveillance videos, that was tossed out because they didn't have a warrant. That is a problem. And the prosecution is going to have to deal with that. And it might be something that they cannot deal with. It might lead to other evidence getting tossed out. If the judge believes that the recovery of those bags really all related back to the tracking evidence they found on those cell phones. Does that mean that that's fruit of the poisonous tree and the judge kicks all of that out? I'm just saying that when you have something as important as this, as this cell phone, you need to make sure that you did the work properly so that that doesn't get kicked out and somehow a mistake was made here. The fact that they didn't get a warrant to me is inexcusable. I don't know how that took place. There's a lot of flux in the law when it comes to cell phones and digital devices. And the laws become far more in favor of protecting items like that. It used to be that if you were arrested and you had your uh, wallet on you, the police could take that wallet, search it, incident to arrest, it's called, and there was no problem with probable cause whatsoever. You were arrested, you had this item on you, the police are allowed to look at that. And that extended towards cell phones for a period of time until finally the courts, Supreme Court even, took a look at that and said, you know what, a cell phone is very different than a wallet. A cell phone has 
financial information, contact information, tracking information, emails, text messages, social media. It goes on and on and on. This is far beyond a wallet. This is someone's entire life many times located on a phone. And therefore, we're going to require a heightened degree of probable cause and warrants if you want to get into these devices. The fact that they didn't do that in this case creates a huge problem as we're going to see. And we'll see how that um, all spells out. But finally, the last point I have on this is this idea of this alibi script. This really troubles me. Um, I think it is good evidence for the prosecution. I think it does show some level of consciousness of guilt. Why else is somebody going to be tracking their events on the day that somebody disappeared if they weren't somehow involved and know that that might be important to them later on? Here's what troubles me about it. If they were doing that upon the instructions of an attorney, that's a problem. First problem is it makes sense. If I am hired by someone who says, hey, I I believe that I may be a suspect in a murder or in a disappearance. As we're talking about it, the first thing I'm probably going to tell them to do is to write down where you were and what you did. This may become important. You haven't been arrested yet. And that may, arrest may be coming months or even years down the line. And we don't want you to forget this crucial information. You need to write this all down. This is important. This may be important later on for you having to speak to police, explain your whereabouts, be able to provide an alibi. This is all important stuff. If that were truly what they were doing, then then how could you find any nefarious intent in why they were doing this and use that against them? The other problem here is, isn't there attorney-client privilege questions at play or work product privilege questions at play? If they were really doing this at the instructions of a defense attorney, that could be arguably attorney-client privilege. That could be communications if they were intended to... In um, turn this alibi script over to a defense attorney that could be seen as attorney-client um, communication that's being done in written form it could be seen as work product in a sense I, I there might be problems and strengths and weaknesses with each of these arguments but immediately I think people looked at that alibi script and they said oh god that's that's bad news for the defense to me I looked at it and go and went, wait a minute, there are major problems with them being able to use this. Again, something we're going to have to see how it plays out. We will, as always, continue to follow this case and update you to anything important that transpires. Finally, we move to Walterboro, South Carolina, where defense attorneys for Alex Murdoch have encountered a major and unexpected hurdle after a judge's ruling limited permissible evidence to be presented on the man's behalf. Murdoch, who is appealing his conviction for the murder of his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul, claims that county clerk Becky Hill pressured jurors into a guilty verdict for Murdoch, even allegedly telling the jury not to believe Murdoch's testimony. Hill, wrote a book about her experience on the Murdoch trial, has sworn she did not interfere with jurors. However, she has become the target of additional allegations. Aside from the alleged jury tampering, tampering, Hill has been accused of plagiarizing sections of her book and misusing public funds. However, any references to Hill's other reported improprieties will not be allowed at Murdoch's evidentiary hearing. 
To prove their burden, Murdoch's attorneys will have to prove not only that Hill inappropriately interacted with the jury, but that her actions definitively prejudiced jurors against Murdoch. The hearing, scheduled for January 29th, will be held with news cameras allowed in the courtroom, provided they do not focus on any of the testifying jurors whose identities will be protected throughout the proceedings. Did the judge get this right? Um, I think yes, and I think no. And I, even when I say no, I don't necessarily think that the judge might be wrong, but I think reasonable minds can disagree on something. I understand, first of all, um, and agree with the idea that you cannot turn this hearing into the trial of Mrs. Hill. That's what the judge said. That's a quote from the judge. And I agree with that. And I think that's what the defense is trying to do to some extent. So all of this other stuff about whether or not she plagiarized the book, whether or not she uh, you know, planned on writing this book to begin with, all of that goes towards, you know, at the best for the defense, her motivations, and at the weakest for the defense is really inconsequential. But her motivations are really not pertinent to the judge's decision in this case. The judge is concerned in this instance with what was in the jurors' minds. So it really doesn't matter if the motivation behind this for Mrs. Hill was just to cause a little bit of trouble, to perhaps write a book and profit off of it, uh, to um, to even innocent, even something as, as she didn't think she was meddling. It's just her honest feelings on it. And she was sharing it with these jurors that she had spent several weeks with and felt comfortable enough to share her feelings, even if that was inappropriate. It doesn't matter what she was thinking, though. It's how did that affect the jurors? Um, but the problem with what the judge is doing here, I think, has to do with burden. And where does that burden lie? The defense is saying, listen, it's on the prosecution to show if we're able to prove that there was tampering. And by tampering, I mean some sort of inappropriate comments or contact between Mrs. Hill and these jurors. Something as simple as there was allegations that she said things like, you know, pay attention to how he behaves. That, that could even be interpreted as innocuous. Um, or other ways that she was indicating her feelings about the trial. If the defense is able to prove that by whatever standard we have in this hearing, then to me, the burden shifts to the prosecution to say that that didn't affect the jurors. In my view, that that should be a clear line. Any, any inappropriate comment or contact between somebody on the outside, especially a courtroom clerk with a position that she held of authority with those jurors, that should be viewed as tampering. And then it's on the prosecution to show that that didn't have any effect on the jurors. Um, but the judge is saying here that, no, I want you to show that not only did this take place, but it did in fact prejudice them. Well, that's an interesting question to me um, because it's really going to depend on how it turns out. And I know that's kind of obvious, but if a juror gets up there and says, yeah, it affected me. She said that, and I, it, it played a role in my mind when I came to this verdict. To me, that's a slam dunk for the defense, and there, something's going to have to be done. But if a juror says, yeah, I heard it. Um, yeah, I believed it. Yeah, I thought she meant it. 
Uh, did that play a role in your deliberations? No, not really. To me, how is that possible? How is it possible it's not going to play any role in their deliberations? Are you telling me that they were able to hear someone like the court clerk? This is their this is their their steward throughout this entire process. A person of authority, a person who, by the way, they probably feel has some inside knowledge that they don't even have. That person making these comments is going to play no role, no effect whatsoever in their deliberations. And to me, if it played any role, that's a huge problem. But this really comes down to the question of, does he deserve a new trial? Listen, I think the jurors got it right. I think that this case was convincing. I think there were some avenues for the defense to explore, and I think they did a good job of exploring that. But at the end of the day, he lied to police. He had every motivation. He's the only person who was around. You, you go on and on and on and try to separate yourself from your respective corner that you've taken on this case. And I think it's fairly obvious that and convincing that he was the one who's responsible for these horrible, horrible murders. That's not the question here, though. The question is, did he get a fair trial in our system, which demands that? To me, this is egregious. If this took place, if this clerk did interfere with these jurors or try to influence them or even you know, quote unquote, innocently influence them. I think he deserves a new trial. I really do. That's how important protecting deliberations is. They cannot have any outside influence, certainly not from somebody in, in that kind of position. This isn't like they happen to have read a news article or um, they happen to have overheard some offhand comment in the hallway. This is the clerk making comments to them about the evidence and perhaps the guilt or innocence of the person they're being charged with deciding. If that's true, that's egregious. And yes, he deserves a new trial. Is that a problem? Huge. Does that mean that a lot of people are going to go through a lot of work and now you've got this person who you believe is responsible for murder who may have an opportunity to get out of that? Yes. Is all of that bad? It's horrible. Does that mean that that's not the right thing to do? I think it is the right thing to do to give him a new trial if that's what, how this all ends up. But we will see. And this may not be the end of it. Even if this judge, who, by the way, is a new judge from the trial judge, that trial judge recused himself so that this new judge could make a decision on this exact issue... Even if that judge decides to deny him the new trial, I think there has already been, as for the reasons we've discussed, avenues for him to appeal this decision, which then could lead to another hearing, which then could lead to another opportunity for a new trial. So I guess that's all to say that the never-ending saga of Alex Murdoch uh, continues. Um, and at least we'll have cameras in the courtroom at the next hearing, which is always, I think, a benefit to, to shed light on how uh, our courtrooms and trials and jurisprudence takes place and we will continue to watch that and of course update you on everything but in the meantime that is our show for this week i wanted to thank you as always for joining us i am your host josh ritter you can find me on instagram and twitter at joshua ritter esq or at joshuaritter.com you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts and we want to hear from you if you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address Tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>